the armed forces of Ukraine continue their gradual movement towards Tokmak in the country's south. In the meantime, Ukraine expands the range of domestically produced weapons, both by own efforts and together with foreign defense companies who open factories in Ukraine. You're listening to the Explaining Ukraine podcast. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, an English-language website about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher, journalist and chief editor of Ukraine World. I invite you to our roundup of the key events and trends in and around Ukraine over the past week, delivered by my colleagues Maxim Panchenko and Anastasia Heresimchuk, journalists and analysts at Ukraine World. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Let me remind you that you can support our work at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front lines at paypal, ukraine.resisting at gmail.com. Hello and welcome. My name is Maxim Panchenko. I'm journalist and analyst at Internews Ukraine and Ukraine World. I am joined by my colleague Anastasia Herasimchuk, equally journalist and analyst at Internews Ukraine in Ukraine World. We are going to talk today, as we do each week, about the recent developments in and around Ukraine, the battlefield politically, economically, militarily, and so on. So, Nastya, can you please outline the topics that we are going to be discussing today? Sure, Maxim. Today we are going to talk about, traditionally, about Russian attacks uh, on Ukrainian territory, about the developments of Ukrainian armed forces in the counteroffensive, and we are also going to touch upon the actions of Ukrainian armed forces in the Russian deep rear. And we will also tell you uh, a little bit about Ukrainian new weapons that can be used for long-range operations. We are also going to tell uh, to dwell on the recent Pope Francis address to Russians, and uh, we are going to conceptualize this thing to you. And um, the last but not least topic concerns about the Ukrainian prisoners of war that are kept in Russia in awful conditions. Thank you, Nastya. So, yes, indeed, all the interesting and needed for discussion topics. But we'll start with the discussion of what is going on uh, in the front lines. And if you look at the map, there are several areas in which the warfare is most heated. This is the uh, warfare to the south of uh, the town of Bakhmut in the uh, area of Krishivka and Andrivka. These are the two villages that are uh, to the south of the town and where Ukrainians are trying to not only to break through the Russian lines, but also to encircle Russians in, in the town of Bakhmut in order to entrap them there. And uh, that way to try and push back the front line further to the east. Uh, another hotspot is uh, Robotene in the Parisia region. So we're now going to the southern uh, front line. Robotene is the most, I would say, perspective area along the front lines these days when it comes to Ukraine's counteroffensive. Ukrainians have, take, have been taken uh, village by village in that area. And uh, international observers and domestic experts say that uh, Ukrainians in this particular area, Ukrainians have already managed to break through the first line of defense 
of Russia. It seems like if indeed this is the area of the primary uh, pressure of Ukraine, that Ukraine's strategy consists in pushing forward to the town of uh, Tokmak, which is one of the largest cities in the uh, Zaporizhia Oblast and one of the largest ones in the occupied uh, parts of the Zaporizhia Oblast, maybe, uh, maybe next to Melitopol. All of this uh, draws a picture in which uh, Ukrainians may be targeting to uh, push the front line uh, further to the south, but not just in one place. But if you look at the map, for instance, at Deep State, at uh, where the front line is now going, so maybe Ukrainians are trying to reach the roads that lead through Melitopol, through Tokmak, Uh, and basically uh, cut the occupied territories lengthwise in two in in order to make this strip, uh, the occupied strip along the Azov Sea uh, coast, uh, approximately two times narrower. I think that would be, I think that would be a strategy that can be obtainable still this year, but of course we'll have to see. At the same time, there are developments elsewhere, uh, elsewhere in the uh, in the front lines, uh, to the northern part of the Luhansk Oblast and the eastern part of uh, Kharkiv Oblast. This is the parts where these two oblasts uh, meet. Uh, there is uh, the um, build up of Russian forces. Uh, Russians have accumulated around a thousand tanks around 1,500 armored combat vehicles, uh, 650 units of artillery, and 400 MLRS systems just there. And it is not even the major hotspot uh, along the front lines. So Russia has been trying to distract Ukraine from the counteroffensive by amassing its troops uh, there in a different location, threatening to retake what Ukraine has deoccupied back in November, uh, October, November 2022. Uh, in that sense, uh, uh, of course, this should not be underestimated because you remember that uh, figures that I have just cited, but at the same time, to put things into perspective, the, entire, uh, the, the entirety of tanks, for instance, that the West uh, has pledged to support Ukraine with totals at approximately 900 and it's for the use along the entirety of the front lines. And Russians had amassed uh, only in that Kharkiv-Luhansk borderline region a thousand tanks. So this threat should not be underestimated if it, if it even indeed is meant to be only a distraction. So this, of course, is a grave situation for, for Ukraine. Uh, at the same time, on the bright uh, bright uh, side, and I think this would be this will be my last point on the counteroffensive developments, is that Ukrainians have um, managed to install the first national flag on the left bank of the occupied parts of Kherson Oblast. So basically, Ukrainians have come across the Dnieper River. It should not be overestimated at this point in time because uh, it only has been a raid, one of the several raids that have happened uh, recently. Uh, we're not yet talking about uh, uh, forcing the Dnipro River and trying to uh, to have uh, well paratroopers go to uh, you know to the left bank of the Dnipro River because this is a very complicated uh, operation and maybe it will never happen in this war at all. But uh, what this shows is first of all 
symbolically it's important because we show that we do not uh, forget about people in the occupied territories in Kherson Oblast, but also, uh, and more importantly maybe, uh, this raid and similar raids show that people, that, that uh, Russian troops uh, that had been stationed in Kherson Oblast have been so needed uh, in the Zaporizhia front lines to counter Ukraine's counteroffensive, that uh, a very little part of them have remained in Kherson Oblast. So little part of them, uh, in fact, that uh, there has been no basically effective attempts to curtail Ukraine's raids to the left bank of the Dnieper River. So hopefully this means that Russian defense is going to be abating there and this will present more opportunities for Ukraine to counterattack and start deoccupying the left bank of the Dnieper River too. So that's not so in a nutshell about the developments in, uh, in the front lines. But of course, on the flip side, Russia also is uh, trying to attack Ukraine, not just at the front lines, but also through its traditional air raids, uh, on Ukrainian peaceful cities, and my colleague Anastasia has more to tell about this at this point. Yes, unfortunately, Russia continues attacking Ukrainian peaceful cities, and um, Russians have been using this practice for not less than three months already. So at nights, Ukrainians are woken up by air raid alerts, and unfortunately, um, Sometimes these attacks uh, have destructive uh, consequences. So this week, unfortunately, wasn't an exception, and Russia Russians kept firing missiles and the UAVs uh, on, at Ukrainian cities at nights. And this week, it happened almost every night. Uh, the most massive attack took place on the night of the 30th of August, and um, at uh, this night. At that night, uh, Russians launched uh, 28 uh, cruise missiles and 16 drones at Ukrainian cities. Um, Kiev, Cherkasa, Odessa, and Mykolaiv regions were under this attack the most. Luckily, uh, Ukrainian air defense managed to uh, sh uh, shut down all the missiles and 15 out of 16 drones. However, uh, unfortunately, the debris um, from the shot missiles um, killed two people in Kiev and also caused heavy damages to um, buildings in several districts of the city. So even though the, uh, uh, the air defense forces of Ukraine managed to shoot uh, these air targets, still uh, there are so many risks connected even to debris. Uh, and um, as I've said, luckily, uh, the um, air defense of Ukraine worked very effectively, especially this week. But unfortunately, several uh, attacks, uh, several air raids by Russians had uh, dire consequences. For example, um, on the night of 28th of August, uh, a caliber missile reached uh, targeted uh, a factory in Poltava Oblast, and four people were killed, and the factory itself was heavily damaged. And the last night, uh, there was again the attack uh, with caliber cruise missiles, and uh, such a 
missile um, hits uh, one of the uh, infrastructure facilities in Vinnytsia. So we, we see that um, Russians are terrorizing Ukrainian populations, population, and they also are trying to uh, hit um, infrastructure objects and some transport and logistical uh, logistical objects. What is noteworthy here, and uh, I, I should mention that Russians changed their tactics a little bit. What we uh, observed this week uh, exactly was the um, change trajectory of uh, these missiles. What I'm talking about is that uh, from now on, Russian missiles fired at Ukrainian cities, they do not move directly to their aim. Uh, they change their trajectory and they change tra- their trajectory several times. Uh, so it's possible that they change the route up to 10 times per hour. Um, it's important to tell why uh, this is happening. So first of all, Russians are trying to find the weak spots in Ukrainian air defense. This is quite an evident uh, reason why it's done. Another one is not that evident. And here we should uh, pay attention to the problem of um, supplies, of some technical details, some technical devices to Russia. Because if we remember uh, the times of the beginning of the full-scale invasion, uh, Russian missiles sometimes couldn't even reach the territory of Ukraine. Now they not just reach the targets, they can even uh, make such maneuvers. It means that uh, if we speak from technical part, from the technical sense, the missiles got more precise, And uh, the chips that are used uh, for production of these missiles, they let uh, make these maneuvers. So uh, it's important to pay attention to this problem and uh, to say once again that it's necessary to solve uh, the problem of supplies of such uh, chips uh, or some um, micro details that are necessary for military production in Russia. Uh, Because uh, it's a matter of uh, high importance. Russians now are uh, amassing their capabilities and we see that they can make their missiles better. So it's a question of uh, um, further scrutiny and we need to solve this problem as soon as possible. Yes, uh, yes, indeed, it's very important. At the same time, against this backdrop, uh, I am happy to conclude that, uh, as anybody can conclude reading the news, that uh, evidently Ukraine is building up capacities to have uh, more and more uh, efficient uh, counter strikes on, uh, on on Russia when it comes to the to the use of uh, UAVs especially and I believe uh, that uh, you have more details about how Ukraine has retaliated uh, in which scale this has happened and more about the geography of these happenings and their results so please can you dwell a little bit on that yes sure uh, we received so many good news Uh, from Ukrainian military this week. So uh, Russian territory, Russian deep rear and 
uh, rear of occupied territories were attacked uh, by uh, Ukrainian UAVs several times this week. Uh, so uh, if we summarize all the strikes, all the attacks, uh, six Russian oblasts were targeted. And uh, the most important uh, attack of Russian of uh, Ukrainian uh, armed forces against Russia were at uh, Pskov region, uh, where the important um, airfield is located. So uh, under this attack, Ukrainian armed forces managed to destroy at least four cargo military planes and allegedly several uh, strike jets were also damaged. So they were not completely uh, destroyed, but they were damaged. We also very, uh, almost every night we hear about blasts, uh, explosions in uh, the occupied Crimea, uh, especially on these uh, strategically important uh, uh, factories, depots, etc. So, uh, and it's very important to note here that Ukraine doesn't attack civilian infrastructure, unlike Russians. So, all the special uh, operations, all the air raids, are aimed exactly at uh, Russian troops' logistics, at uh, industries, at factories that are connected with military. Uh, activities of Russians. So it's um, a military complex, not not something civilian. That's very important to note. And uh, here it's also worth mentioning uh, not only about the UAVs of Ukrainian production that are used to uh, attack Russian territories, but also uh, missiles. Here, I cannot give so many details because uh, there are no um, many details in public space, in information space. And it's clear because of the security issues, um, everything cannot be um, uncovered. So there is so much, disc- uh, uh, so, so much information is kept under secret. Uh, so um, going back to the attack against um, uh, against air against air defense facilities in the occupied Crimea, uh, some experts, uh, some foreign experts, Ukrainian experts say, and uh, some Ukrainian officials hint at the use of modified version of Neptune missile. So, what is basically Neptune missile? It's a anti-ship missile. Mm, with the range up to 280 kilometers. But um, Ukrainians were working uh, on modifying this missile, so allegedly now it's become the uh, one which is able to target ground uh, aims, ground targets. And uh, there is also an opinion that these missiles got new guidance systems. And these new guidance systems are so technologically developed that they can um, quite effectively uh, quite effectively evade electronic warfare and uh, they are difficult to detect. The only minus, the only deficiency of this modified version of Neptune missile is that it has subsonic speed. Uh, and uh, I hope uh, further we will know uh, more details about the use of these missiles, about the modified version of these missiles. Uh, they were also uh, there was also opinion that Ukrainians use as uh, two hundred missiles. Uh, 
Mm, these are anti-aircraft uh, missiles. The very old version, the Soviets, uh, the Soviet um, made in Soviet times, produced in Soviet times missile. Uh, it was made back back in 1960s, and Ukraine stopped using it uh, since uh, not using, but it's uh, uh, stopped um, like using it even for uh, some trainings back in 2013. But according to Russian. Uh, Ministry of Defense, and according to the British intelligence, uh, these missiles were modified uh, to ground ballistic missiles. Uh, so back then they were ground air missiles. Now they are ground ground missiles. Their range is up to 300 kilometers, but with this modification, as the British intelligence reports, with these modifications they can reach uh, longer distances. Uh, Ukrainian authorities didn't confirm uh, the this modification and the use of this type of missiles at all. Uh, but again, we will see one day we may know uh, what was used by Ukrainian armed forces to bring victory closer. And the last very intriguing uh, news about uh, Ukraine's produced um, weaponry is... Um, Unknown, let's say for now it's unknown a weapon, maybe unknown missile, uh, the range of which is up to 700 kilometers. And on the 31st of August, uh, the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, told that this weapon was successfully tested. And uh, exactly at that moment, it was said that it can reach targets uh, at the distance up to 700 kilometers. So um, the Ukrainian officials don't, don't give any details about what it is, how it works. So we know only about the uh, alleged range. And uh, officials also say that the production of this weaponry is ongoing. So it is indeed very important that Ukraine is adapting uh, all types of weaponry uh, and uh, that Ukraine is producing new types of weaponry as the UAVs uh, for this war uh, because it not only lets us have uh, more weapons, uh, which we badly need, it also lets us have our hands free in our actions because, again, if we... Uh, if we talk about the uh, Western partners' attitude to the use of their long-range missiles, it is reported that uh, our Western partners don't want their missiles uh, to target the Russian territory. And when it comes to counteroffensive, when it comes to war, it's not possible to gain victory without conducting such operation against um military capabilities of the enemy. And the Ukrainian commander-in-chief, Valery Zaluzhny, was so um, desperate about using, uh, about fulfilling such operations, and it was not possible to do it without our own, uh, our own weaponry. So our drones, these modifications of missiles, new weapons Ukraine produces, lets us be more effective and efficient uh, in our counteroffensive. And of course, uh, we all, as Ukrainians, we all hope that it brings our victory closer. 
Thank you, Nastya. And in this context, I would like to uh, give some more some broader conclusions of what all of this means. Because, first of all, I remember that a couple of weeks back, a couple of episodes of this podcast back, we were talking about how uh, single assaults, uh, presumably Ukrainian assaults with UAVs on Russian territory, what uh, fallout they uh, they led to for the Russian side. And we were talking about like, hmm, this may be a bright happening, but this is not going to change anything operationally. Like maybe this is going to have some psychological effect on Russians, on their attitude towards war, or maybe at least among some of them, but not generally in Russia. So we were talking about more of of, of the psychological effect, of the uh, of the optics of things. And now we can slowly see or maybe not, not even so slowly it happened, it has been happening in the matter of weeks, how uh, Ukraine is um, trying to capitalize with the scale uh, of, of these uh, capabilities it, it has, uh, because now the impact is much bigger. Now uh, we have, for instance, in Pskov, as Nasta said, we have um, managed to destroy uh, four to six uh, different uh, types of uh, airplanes, etc. So this already is starting to uh, bear fruit. And what is important, it also means that Ukraine, uh, Ukraine can afford this. That uh, indeed, the, we're not talking about like a couple of UAVs that have reached their targets, luckily, in the territory of Russia. Ukraine, for the first time, this was for the first time that Ukraine has launched an entire wave of uh, UAVs in a, in a single attack and has targeted as much as six different oblasts in uh, Russia, which is a huge coverage. And uh, the fact that, he, that this has not been a one-off thing, that he, this has come within the context of continuous attacks on Russian territory, I think that Ukraine still has many aces up its sleeve. It's just that much of it indeed is still not known to the public because this is the massive production we're going to be talking about if if we're going to keep this pace of attacks on Russian territory. However, uh, international media, they already have come forward with uh, inside information that Ukraine has uh, been developing as many as at least six different developments, UAV developments, projects um, of its own on the national scale, so not procured by, but its own projects of UAVs with uh, around 1,000 or even more kilometers range for them to be able to reach deep into Russian territory. And many of them, uh, presumably, once again, this is not entirely public uh, or at least officially public yet, but many of them, uh, have uh, well, they are high tech technologies uh, and mi- new military tech technologies. For instance, uh, there are already evidence that some of Ukrainian UAVs, presumably those, if I remember correctly from the news, presumably those that have been used in this attack on six oblasts in Russia, they are made of uh, cardboard. Well, of course, in addition to the explosives, uh, to that of course are from different materials, but the very bodies of the UAVs are cardboard made, which helps them to go unnoticed through their uh, air defense systems of Russia that it has installed along Ukraine's border. And that also, if it's true, it also explains how these big of a wave of uh, Ukrainian UAVs 
that has been able to cover six oblast at once has gone unnoticed um, unnoticed to to their targets. So also going forward to on this on this topic that uh, Nasta has started about the uh, about Ukraine's own developments in the uh, defense industry, I would say that uh, Ukraine has indeed made a big leap here. Uh, because not only Ukraine has started developing its own weapons, the six UAVs at least that I have mentioned, the uh, missiles, the Neptune-modified missiles, the 700-kilometer-range missiles that Nasta has been talking about, but also Ukraine has, it seems, bet on cooperation with the foreign uh, military defense uh, industry, and Ukraine evidently is trying to lure them into the country to create incentives for them to create entire enterprises here in Ukraine. For instance, there have been uh, news about the agreement between Ukraine and Sweden uh, to produce the L-119 howitzers in Ukraine. This is the news that comes from the uh, two weeks back, uh, basically when uh, President Zelensky was visiting uh, several countries, including Sweden. So, uh, and also back from that time, there have been news that Ukraine was also going to um, produce in cooperation uh, the CV-90s. These are the combat vehicles that already are used in Ukraine, but previously they have been just, had been delivered to Ukraine from Sweden, and now they are going to be uh, maintained and produced in Ukraine, presumably. So, and a big highlight in this uh, is that Ukraine has signed agreements to cooperate with the BAE Systems um, Consortium, uh, the British international transnational company to uh, localize much of the weapons production in Ukraine. And this is very important because uh, what does this, this mean? First of all, apart from the increase in Ukraine's capacities, we are talking about a political aspect here, because first of all, um, there are risks in the future that, and there are always these uh, risks, that uh, Ukraine will be supported less with time, because uh, Ukraine's war with Russia is going to be uh, further down on the agenda of international community because there are going to be elections uh, in many places, for instance, next year in the United States, as well as in Europe, there is going to be a new European Commission. So Ukraine is trying to uh, create stronger bonds, not just to uh, cooperate on the delivery from other partners uh, of weapons to Ukraine, but also on trying uh, on uh, producing those weapons domestically, even maybe in cooperation with international players. What's important here also is that uh, Ukraine is starting to make this differentiation, I would say, between foreign governments and foreign companies. Because even if there are any political problems in the future with the governments, against the backdrop of the reasons I have described, elections, etc. Ukraine is going to be able to cooperate bilaterally with the enterprises from the from abroad that will already be working, operating in the Ukrainian soil. So I think this is something that uh, is going to be capitalized upon indeed, and which is very important to, to, 
to carry on with it uh, because this is also going to be important after the war uh, in context of Ukraine's future membership in NATO, in context of Ukraine, if Ukraine's need to be the Europe's west, uh, eastern flank uh, when it comes to facing, facing off with uh, Russia. And uh, of course, Western enterprises have a big incentive in terms that they are going to have uh, huge uh, revenues because of the need that is created on the spot by the war. So for the time being, this is a win-win situation, but also a safeguard for Ukraine for the future. Okay, so now moving on, there are only several topics left to discuss. The one I suggest we go uh, forward first with uh, is the information about the Ukrainian civilians that are held hostage in Russia. Nastya, can you please detail a little bit more on this? Uh, indeed. Uh, when we talk about Ukrainian prisoners of war, um, we very often admit the fact that uh, not only Ukrainian military, not only Ukrainian soldiers, but uh, civilians are kept in Russian prisons. And it's a big problem. Uh, it's a big problem in terms of uh, international law. But uh, let's first... Uh, tell our listeners about the situation regarding the Ukrainian civilians that are kept uh, in Russian captivity. So according to recent um, estimates, and uh, that was uh, said by the Ukrainian Ukraine's ombudsman uh, Dmitro Lubinets, uh, currently in uh, Russian prisons, about 25,000 uh, of Ukrainian civilians are kept. Um, why, a, why is it a big problem? According to uh, international legislation, uh, there are certain rules of conduct uh, towards uh, military prisoners of war. But the situation with civilian prisoners uh, isn't regulated by the Geneva Convention. So according to both Russian law and international law, these people have no status. Thus, uh, it's not possible to understand anything about their state, the conditions of their detainment, and what is the most important, there are no legal mechanisms of swaps or uh, no legal mechanisms uh, how to get these people back from Russia. Uh, so the the amount of people is really huge, uh, like 25,000 people is only official number. And we don't know what is going on um, exactly in the occupied territories. So but when, we, when we talk about these people, uh, these are uh, civilians uh, imprisoned, um, civilians from the occupied territories that were imprisoned. How does it happen? In the occupied territories so people uh, get detained for no reasons at all so russian military russian so-called um, law enforcement officials can just um, take people from the streets for some words or for them uh, looking suspicious according to russian military so there are no real grounds to detain these people they can be just caught uh, in the streets uh, and uh, be detained. What is also important here uh, that uh, 
Ukrainian civilians civilians are sentenced for long terms, up to 19 or 20 years in Russian prisons. Uh, so uh, Ukrainian officials are trying to um, to involve not only Ukrainian experts, but also international lawyers and specialists uh, to solve this problem and to find the mechanisms how we can get our people back, how we can save lives of our people, because it's widely known how uh, Russians uh Treat how Russians treat Ukrainians, especially imprisoned Ukrainians. So there are reports about uh, systemic tortures, uh, physical and psychological, and about bad conditions of uh, detainment. Uh, so there is no conclusion here. There is no answer what to do here. And we need to talk about it, to pay attention to this problem, because we need to solve it. And we shouldn't forget that not only military uh, military uh are detained in Russia and luckily uh the Ukrainian state gradually step by step uh, manages to take them back we shouldn't forget about civilians and it's a big problem that should be addressed and uh it will take time and efforts not only of uh, from Ukraine but from the international community as a whole to solve it and the last topic uh, for today is uh, a news break that I think uh, was not so noticeable in Western media as it was in Ukrainian media, but uh, it still is very important because it is very exemplary uh, about uh, how about the optics of this war in the world, uh, world, I would say. So in his recent video address to Russian youth, Russian Catholic uh, youth, uh, Pope Francis called on the on that youth to cherish the legacy of, I quote, great Russia uh, and uh, on the uh, that of, of the great rulers of Russia, meaning the Peter I and the Catherine II. And of course, this infuriated Ukrainians because uh, this entire war is uh, about uh, Russian imperialism and uh, that Russian imperialism had spilled over into this century long centuries long without any extraction desire of russia to uh, basically swallow ukraine by doing uh, what it is doing these days uh, in the process and what i refer to is the atrocities like the ones that happened in mariupol in bucha and elsewhere in ukraine in bakhmut for instance so indeed no no wonder that this um, infuriated ukrainians uh, across the country and i think that uh, this is as i said very exemplary about how uh, the how the war is seen in the world because uh, this example this why is this exemplary because the optics of the war comes to regular uh, consumers of information in the west through the eyes and through the perception of such big opinion leaders as Pope Francis is himself. and But what can be done if his perception is so erroneous? Because, first of all, let me, uh, let me say this, that uh, his take, he's doing this, he's telling Russians uh, to be proud of the legacy of the great Russian empire, uh, this is very hypocritical, because he previously tried to be a mediator between Ukraine and Russia in this war. So he would be expected to be at least impartial. And now he basically tells Russians that they are right 
in the philosophy that they are pursuing and that they have been pursuing with regard to how they see the surrounding territories, surrounding states, and how they think they can treat their surrounding states and their nations. So that's uh, first. Secondly, is that this also shows us how how big of a romantic take, I would say, the Western uh, leaders and Western nations as a whole have towards the history of Russia. Because it, it seems like it is quite hard for the, for the world, for the, for, for the West in this sense, to marry two images in their, in their uh, imagination. The image of Russia that is um, doing, that is committing these atrocities in Ukraine these uh, already years. And the image of Russia, this romantic image of Russia, that this is a once, uh, a state that once has been an empire, like a brotherly empire to the empires, the, the British Empire, the French Empire, other empires, Spanish Empire, that have come down in history uh, of, of the world, of Europe specifically. So there is this temptation to, for the West to see Russia as one of, its, uh, of their own. Like, hey, there have been these great states in the history of, uh, uh, of the world, and Russia is one of them. Russia is our brother. But it does not occur to them that look, this image of Russia, however romantic it may seem to you, comes at the, at the price you can see these days along the front lines and even more importantly among the civilian people in Ukraine. So this is something that uh, exists simultaneously. So please do not be too romantic once again about this. And my third comment about this would be that um, Pope Francis he is perceived very much as a representative of a global south. And, of course, for the lack of a better word, word uh, this should not be summarized as a global south, but maybe it also is a good term for presenting the once oppressed nations that have uh, managed to liberate themselves uh, either uh, from European empires back in the South America, back a hundred years back, for instance, or later during the wind of change uh, era in Africa. So basically their philosophy of life, uh, of political life, uh, their political philosophy is that we present, uh, present ourselves uh, as opposing to the idea of empires, because we know what this is. And Pope Francis would be expected to represent them, including in this uh, politics, if he already has chosen to be involved in politics. But to the contrary, we see that he basically betrays the vision of the people he represents. He's basically telling another empire that, guys, you are good at what you're doing. You should not remember, you should not forget this. You should to the contrary, cherish this. How can he explain this to his uh, to his uh, followers, of which there is more than a billion in the world? I mean, this is a big deal. So I think that there is much controversy and much to be thought about, uh, about who Western opinion leaders are when it comes to the topic, at least to this one, to the topic of uh, Russia's war against Ukraine. So that is a rhetorical conclusion, but a very important one for everybody who might be listening to us from those other part, parts of the world, from the uh, from Africa, from the uh, South America, and all the other nations that have once been oppressed. 
So I think that uh, we will wrap up uh, with this topic. Uh, so thank you for thank you very much for listening to us consistently and to listening for listening to this uh, new episode of our weekly analysis on what's going on in and around Ukraine, in and around the war uh, in Ukraine. My name is Maxim Panchenko. I was joined by my colleague Anastasia Hrasamchuk. We are both journalists and analysts at Internews Ukraine and Ukraine World. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. And let me remind you that you can support us at patreon.com slash Ukraine World. And you can also support our volunteer trips to the front lines in the East and in the South at PayPal, ukraine.resisting at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening and we'll meet you in our next episode.